God is good, isn't he? So good. Well, good morning again. We are in week two of this new series called Build a Wall. Um, we're talking about the story of Nehemiah in Scripture. And we started last week, and I'll recap a little bit of what we talked about last week in case you missed it. Um, you know, we're coming into a significant season shift as a church, and we felt like it would be, it just seemed right to teach on this topic out of the book of Nehemiah. This phrase, build a wall, was really a calling phrase out of the book of Nehemiah to, for the church to even start. It was really, the book of Nehemiah was really like the calling book. It was like the blueprints for the whole first year the church started over five years ago. Um, and the book of Nehemiah chronicles the life of Nehemiah, who had a prestigious role in the king's palace in Babylon, felt compelled of the Lord to go back to Jerusalem that had been in ruins and the walls um, laid waste. And he felt compelled by the Lord to go back and rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Second half of Nehemiah talks about Ezra the priest, who once the walls were built, it allowed for revival to happen as the word was preached within the safe walls. Um, but last week we talked mostly about Jer um, Nehemiah 1 and 2, um, which is where Nehemiah and this group of men decide, yes, indeed, we are going back to rebuild the walls. And we took a look at Nehemiah 2.17 when they went back and they saw the walls for the first time with their own eyes. And it says, then I, Nehemiah speaking, said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. So last week we talked about how in those days, in order for a city to survive, they had to have strong walls around the city to protect them from invaders. And so um, Jerusalem had been taken over, it, it lied waste, the homes were destroyed, the walls were, were destroyed. And so the first thing, before they started building the inside, they had to build the walls to protect and save the city. Um, last week, we showed some pictures, I'll show them again in case you weren't here last week, of some walls in ruins. You can see it'd be easy to climb up that rock pile and get over the wall. I'm sure there are places of Jerusalem's wall that looked like this, like what's the point of having a wall if there's gaps and breaches in the wall like this? It's not safe. The enemy can easily come in. And so that's the visual of what Nehemiah was seeing when he said, we have to come back and rebuild the wall for the safety and the protection to save and rescue the people of Jerusalem. <clears throat> um, so last week we also talked about how that was Nehemiah's story of building a wall, and it was very natural. It was, it was construction. Um, but then all throughout Scripture, God uses that same phrase and that same imagery exhorting us as believers to build a wall, to stand in the, in the gap, to stand in the breach, and it's not talking about construction. It's talking about spiritual walls of communities, spiritual walls of people's lives that have been broken. And because the walls of their life are broken, just like the images that we saw on the screen, they are not safe spiritually. Their life is on the path of destruction, eternal destruction, if they don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And God says, I need someone to stand in the gap in prayer. I need someone to literally go stand in the gap on that wall and intercede so that these people aren't destroyed. We saw numerous scriptures like in Ezekiel 22:30. This is God speaking. And he says, so I, God speaking, sought for a man. I was looking for someone, God said, who would make a wall, who would stand in the gap, 
God's saying this person's life is in shambles. This person's life is in ruins. Maybe it looks like it's all glossy on the outside, but spiritually they're dead and in ruins and the enemy's wreaking havoc in their life. And I just need someone. Would someone stand in the gap for this community? Would someone stand in the gap for this person's life? Less destruction come upon them, right? So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall, stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. When spiritual walls of a town or a person's life are broken down, the people are not spiritually safe. God is looking for a church. He's looking for a people group who will stand in the gap and build a wall. It's foundational to the calling of this church to stand in the gap in prayer. Because we believe around here that prayer actually works. That when we stand in the gap in prayer, it actually makes a difference. It actually does provide healing and rescue and protection for these people. And so last week we talked a lot about prayer. I told you guys this week we are going to talk about another way that we stand in the gap is through invitation. We're going to talk about that more towards the end of this morning. Um, I first want to dive into... Um, the next couple chapters in Nehemiah. Last week we talked about Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2. Today we're going to dive into Nehemiah chapter 3, f- 3 through 6, which is basically the actual construction of the wall that is laid out in detail of, of the story of how did the Jews actually rebuild the wall. The whole um, theme or the whole heart of this next section of Nehemiah is really summarized in Nehemiah 4, 5. Where Nehemiah is writing, he says, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half of its height. This was halfway through them building. They had built it all up to half of the height that it should be. Why? For the people had a mind to work. The people had a mind to work, so we built the wall. So here we have a large group of Jews who had left the comforts of Babylon um, to come back and rebuild the city that God had given them, that was theirs, that God had promised them and their children. You know, about a year ago, we did a series called Kingdom or Bust, and then we had a series, Kingdom Builders, and we talked about how the Jews of this time, although they were exiled in Babylon, they were kicked out, you know, 70 years earlier, they were kicked out of Jerusalem, led captive to Babylon, they actually prospered in Babylon. Like, they weren't slaves there like they were in Egypt. In Babylon, they actually prospered. And there's records of, um, of wealthy Jewish bankers, and, you know, like Nehemiah, he had a high-ranking position in the palace. And so they were prospering. The Jews were in exile in Babylon. But then God opened up opportunity for them to return to Jerusalem and rebuild it. And so here we have a large group of Jews in Jerusalem that Nehemiah is leading, and these people left the comforts of Babylon. Like, they had homes in Babylon that they left. They had businesses and jobs in Babylon that they left. They had warm beds and food in their fridge that they left in Babylon. But they grabbed their kids, and they made the the trek all the way to Jerusalem. And when they got to Jerusalem, there was no, like, Holiday Inn. There was no convenience store. There was no indoor plumbing. The walls were ruined, but the houses were burned down. I mean, the whole city was in shambles. And so it was a great sacrifice for them to go back to rebuild the wall, but also rebuild the homes. And they were probably living in tents and very, like, kind of like we talked about last week, nomad, nomadic as they sacrificed to rebuild the city that God had given them. Last year, Eric taught a message in this theme where he had a sword and a hammer on stage. Remember, we were all like, 
watch yourself with that sword. Because in the book of Nehemiah, as the men built the wall, Scripture tells us that they built the wall with both a hammer and a sword. A hammer to build the wall and then a sword because the wall wasn't complete yet and there was attackers coming to attack them as they were rebuilding their homes and rebuilding their wall. It was not comfortable or convenient or easy. But they had a kingdom or bust mentality. Like, we're going to do whatever it takes to rebuild um, this land, this city that God has given us for his glory, for his kingdom come. They valued the spiritual and physical protection of future generations more than the comforts of their home back in Babylon. And this is the message that I had planned to talk about today. And then this week, a lot of you guys got an email that talked about how we're moving and we have a grand opening, and I know we've been talking about having one service at the new building, but now we're having two services at the new building, and um, which is exciting for some, and for some others, you might be like, oh, but I was already like picturing myself sleeping in a little bit more with the 10 a.m. service. I had already kind of made plans about the rest that I was going to get and maybe you saw in the email or you heard for the first time Pastor Eric share that at the new building, we're going to have services at 9 and 11 instead of 9.30 and 11. And that's to help with traffic flow and checking kids in and out of services at the new building. But maybe if you serve on the Alive team, you automatically knew what that meant for arrival time. And maybe your, your mind was spinning like, oh, I, I don't know if that's what I want to do. Just being honest. So I was like, as we were talking about it as a staff, I was like, you know what? That act, it all actually really fits into what I'm talking about this weekend. Because <laughs> God is calling us to rebuild the spiritual walls of Livingston County, and it will involve sacrifice of time and comfort to do it. Right? I think if the Jews of ne- I think if the Jews of Nehemiah's time could look at our current light affliction they would laugh. Your, your pastor's asking you to show up to church 30 minutes earlier and they have warm coffee waiting for you when you arrive. <laughs> it's so hard. Suffering over here for Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is real though, guys, right? But light affliction, like uh, bumping to two services, you guys might have seen in some of the correspondence that went out. Um, Like if we stayed at one service, we'd have room for like, uh, because of the limitations of parking and and guidelines that we're getting from the fire department of how many we can park on site, we'd have room for like 40 more adults if we stuck at one service. But because we're sacrificing and going to two services and bumping it 30 minutes earlier, that fourth grader down the road is going to have room to come and hear the gospel for the first time. And our light affliction is worth it. Us waking up 40 minutes earlier on a Sunday morning is a light affliction, but nothing in comparison to that couple who's going to come to church for the first time and hear the gospel that we were just singing about 
and their life is changed, our light affliction is worth it. Us alive, those who serve on the alive team, us parking across the street at the fire department and getting shuttled over, and that means I got to arrive even earlier to make that all work. Well, it's going to create space in the parking lot for the young family who maybe hasn't been to church since COVID and are dying on the vine spiritually to come and be revived in the presence of the Lord again. Amen. A couple weeks ago, as I was preparing for this series and reading through the book of Nehemiah, I got to chapter 3 of Nehemiah, and it lists out name by name people who worked on the wall. And normally, honestly, as pastor, sometimes I gloss over those chapters. Like, I don't know who these people are. Why is their name taking up space? I don't even know how to pronounce their name. <laughs> Let's just gloss over and get to the good stuff. But that morning, I read it word for word, line for line, and it hit me. It struck me. And honestly, I almost started to, to cry. I almost started to have tears in my eyes as I was realizing, I don't know these people's names. I don't know how to pronounce these people's names. I don't know who they are or why they're even in Nehemiah chapter 3. But as I was reading it, I just had awareness. Nehemiah knew their names. He knew their faces. These were real people with real stories and real sacrifices that they gave up time and resources and comforts to build this wall. And so if you read through Nehemiah chapter 3, it's a long chapter that lists lots of names. And this family built this part of the wall, and then this family put the beams up, and this family put the door up, and this person did this, and this person did that, and talks about every single family group that helped build the wall. And it was just so powerful as I was reading it, because as I was reading it, I was thinking of us and how so many of us have done so much in so many different ways to help build a wall, to help prepare a space, to welcome more people home at the new building. So I started thinking, man, if there was a chapter three um, in a live family church's history that listed out all of the names, how special would that be? Because we know names and we know faces. I'll read an excerpt from chapter 3. Um, just give me grace as I stumble through these names. Next to Eliashib, the men of Jericho built. And, the, and then next to them, Zakar, the son of Imri um, built. And then the sons of Hishana built the fish gate. And they laid its beams and hung its doors with the bolts and the bars. And then next to them, Marymoth, the son of Urijah and the son of Kosh, they made repairs. And then next to them, Meshelam, and the son of Berechia, and the son of Meshizebel, they made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, they made repairs. Names and people and faces, people who laid beams and people who made repairs to different parts of the wall. Chapter 3 could read something like, Leslie and Scott stored the sanctuary chairs in their basement for six months. Tim and Patty and Diane came in extra to cut in the paint on the walls. Danny and David built the stage and laid the kid floors. Mike and Gary and Laura and Ian, Ryan and Jason and many others cleaned the chairs. Thank God. Don hung the lights and Jade and Sarah and Drew and Regina and Tina and Linda and many others assembled furniture and Dennis and David and Dustin and many others assembled audio panels and many people helped move chairs multiple times and 
Andy and Marlene assembled many teams, and many people served, and many people prayed, and many people gave financially, sacrificially, and the walls were built, and the people had a mind to work, and because of that, many people were welcomed home into a relationship with Jesus. I hesitate to even name names, but I named names because it matters. Like when a name is named, it, it creates more meaning to what is being read. And I could have named everybody's name. Like there's so many people, all of us have chipped in in so many different ways. But God keeps good records. He has a whole chapter in the book of Nehemiah with specific names of people who helped rebuild the wall. Come on, guys. That's so powerful. Don't you know God sees you? He sees your sacrifice of time. He sees your sacrifice of resources. He sees your heart. He knows your heart. God values people. God values you. God values um, our heart and our sacrifice. So beautiful, right? And, and names, chapters with names are listed all throughout Scripture, and usually for different reasons. But one reason that's probably consistent in all of those different chapters that names actual people's names or families' names, I think one common reason that that happens is because people matter. People matter to God. People matter to us. God cares about you. God cares about me. He's aware of our life. He knows when we're hanging beams and pulling out carpet squares and giving above and beyond. He, he sees and he knows and he's aware. He celebrates and records when we do things for his kingdom. And all the people that we're called to reach matter. People that we're praying for matter. Their kids matter. It matters that people know God personally. It matters that people are empowered to live for him passionately. It matters that people put their trust in Jesus. It, it matters a lot, right? And that's why we build a wall in prayer. That's why we stand in the gap in prayer, because people matter. We don't want destruction to come upon them. Remember last week, um, walls are built to protect and to save people. Last week, we likened that to our calling at Alive. God is calling Alive to rebuild the spiritual walls of the city to protect and to save people for eternity. One big way that we do that is through prayer. We can never underestimate the power of prayer and us interceding and standing in the gap for people in our life that are far from him. Another big way that that happens is through invitation, giving the invite. People matter. The invitation matters, too. Prayer prepares the way. Nothing happens without prayer. But oftentimes in prayer, God will lead us and prompt us to invite. The longest recorded period of prayer of Jesus is when he prayed before choosing and inviting the 12 apostles. So it's appropriate and essential for prayer to be foundational. But from that foundation of prayer, invitation comes. It's a natural response. Because we're missing a key part to building the wall if we're just praying and not inviting. Likewise, if we're just inviting without praying, that's not super effective either. The invitation's important. And it's so it still it still blows my mind to remember that Jesus invited people. 
Jesus gave invitation. That wild. Like, if Jesus lived nowadays, he could have just had a podcast. Like, he could have just had a social media platform. He could have just spent all day standing up on the mountain and preaching, and whoever hears it and follows him, great. But he didn't do it that way. Yes, he spoke to the masses, but his disciples were invited. He gave face-to-face invites. He built relationships and extended the invite, would you follow me? Would you come to church with me? You want to come to my youth group this Sunday night? Check out some of these invitations that Jesus gave. In Matthew 4, 18 through 20, and Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother. They were casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he, Jesus, invited them. He said to them, hey, follow me. Hey, come to my church. Hey, come to my small group. I'll make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Then you see in Matthew 9, 9, Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. He went up to him face to face and said, hey, come follow me. Come to my discipleship program. Come to my church. And so he arose and followed him. We see again in John 1, 43 through 46, the following day Jesus went to Galilee And he, Jesus, found Philip and said to Philip, hey, Philip, come follow me. Gave the invitation face to face. That's so powerful. God of the universe, all powerful, all knowing, could have like had some kind of super mind changing power to just stand on a mountain and draw people to him in some kind of superpower way. He was like fully human and came and built a relationship and said, hey, I see gold in you. How about you come follow me? I see gold in you. Why don't you just join me at church this weekend? We'll go out to breakfast afterwards. So anyways, he went to Philip. He found Philip. He went out of his way to build relationship with Philip and said, follow me. There's people on our heart. There's people, there's people in all of our lives that we just have a heart for. We just have a, a drawing for, for whatever reason, out of all the billions of people on the planet, we feel burdened to pray for them. We have care and concern for their spiritual condition. It's from that place that all of this happened in in Jesus' life. He had a heart drawn to Philip, so he went and found him. And he said, hey, Philip, come follow me. Gave the invitation. And then Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Probably knew Andrew and Peter, went to class with them. But then Philip, Jesus gave the invitation to Philip, and then Philip went to Nathanael. And said to him, hey, we found him who Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So then Philip gave the invite to Nathanael. And Nathanael said, yeah, big deal. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Yeah, I've tried churches before. It's not my thing. And then Philip said to him, come and see. Philip gave Nathanael the invite. I love this. So powerful. The power of the invitation Jesus invited people, and he invites us to invite people. Just come and see. I know you've been hurt by churches in the past. I know you've got some intellectual things that make you think that God's not real. Just come and see. Just give it a try. Just come and see. Your friend, your coworker, your family member, your neighbor, they might be the furthest furthest thing from a Christian right now. But through prayer and invitation, 
They could be the next Peter of this generation because of an invitation. And so many times we can freeze up when it comes to the invitation, but I want to give you just a couple of stats to encourage you. You show this first screen up there. Dr. Tom Rayner, who's the president and CEO of Lifeway Christian Resources, they do a lot of different um, surveys. He said 82% of the unchurched, people who don't go to church, are at least somewhat likely to attend church if they're invited. Survey went out, hey, if someone invited you to church, would you go? 82% said, yeah, think about it. Yeah, I'd be somewhat interested in going if someone would just invite me. The other side of that statistic is when Christians were asked, have you invited someone to church? Have you invited an unchurched person to church in the last year? 2% of Christians said that they had done that. At which point it's good self-reflection to ask ourselves: since, what is it, March of 2021, have I invited anybody who doesn't normally go to church to church? If I've got an 82% success rate, why am I not? It goes on to say, if only 2% of church members are inviting their unchurched people to church, then that means 98% of churchgoers never extend an invitation in any given year. That's bad. That's not good. Why is that? Why is that statistic a thing? I don't know. Here's my thoughts. Maybe... Um, we're not thinking about it. Maybe we're not kingdom-minded. Maybe we're just doing the thing, go to work, you know, clean the kitchen, do the thing, mow the lawn. We're just doing the stuff without a kingdom mentality. Maybe we're just not even aware that God's calling us to do that. Maybe we're not even aware that it's our mission to be co-laborers, ambassadors for Christ. That could be a reason. Maybe it's because we're afraid of how an invitation like that could change the relationship dynamic. Oh, I don't want to be labeled as a church, like a Jesus freak. I don't want to, it would just mess up the friendship, and I got enough issues in my life, I I don't need that. Maybe that's why. Or maybe it's because we don't think they'd be interested. Like, if they wanted to go to church, they would go. Like, there's churches everywhere. Like, why do they need me to invite them? Right? I don't know why. Here's the deal. This past week, Ella got some good news, and so we went to Starbucks to celebrate. And I normally get a skinny vanilla latte from Starbucks. No one can top that. It's amazing. But this time, Ella got a caramel frappuccino. And I was like, that kind of sounds good. I'm going to get a caramel frappuccino too. I don't know the last time that I got a frappuccino. But we were drinking it together, and I was like, this is so amazing. Like, (laughs) why do I not get frappuccinos more often? And so anyways, so if you, if you were going to Starbucks this morning and you, you got a Frappuccino and for whatever reason they, they made an extra one and they're like, oh, sorry, we just made you an extra one. Go on and have a good day. So you arrived at church and you already had your Frappuccino, but you got an extra one. Like you would walk in and be like, anybody want a Frappuccino? Got a, I got a Frappuccino. Anyone want a Frappuccino? And you would do that because you assume like people like Frappuccinos. I got an extra frappuccino. I'm going to give my frappuccino away, right? I think a big reason why we don't invite people to church is because we think, oh, they don't like frappuccinos. I'm not going to give them my frappuccino. 
They wouldn't really want it. They aren't really that interested. I see the way they live. I see the way they talk. I, I see the stuff. They're probably just not even interested. I'm not going to waste their time. I'm not going to waste my time. I want to show you guys some more statistics. Barna is an a organization that does um, church statistics even more than LifeWay that I just showed you. Go ahead and show this next slide. A recent survey, a vast majority of U.S. adults report that they would like to grow spiritually. They want your frappe. <laughs> so good. What does it say? 73% of Gen Zers, you know, the people that were staying up all night at Asbury to pray and worship, Gen Zers, high schoolers, college-age students, 73% of them say, yeah, I want to grow spiritually. Millennials don't write off my generation, yo. We're the highest percentage up there. 77% of millennials say, I want to grow spiritually. 77% of Gen Xers say they want to grow spiritually. 72% of boomers, boomers, where are you at? <laughs> want to grow spiritually. People want your frappe. I would say the statistics, the statistics would be about the same. If you walked in here with a frappuccino, I would say probably 77% of people would want that. Maybe it's not some people's thing. But with that knowledge, you eagerly assume someone wants what you're giving away. Right? Does that change the way you're thinking? Oh, maybe I should invite my neighbor to church. They want to grow spiritually. There is a hunger. Maybe you don't see it in the way they talk, in the way they walk, in the way they whatever. There's all kinds of reasons why. That's a whole other message. Let's see another stat. Survey says, Gen Z's openness. Again, these are high school, college-age students. So the question was, do you agree or disagree with the following statement? I am more open to God today than I was before the pandemic. So these are students that were high school students, middle school students when the pandemic hit. Over half of them said, because of the pandemic, I am more open to God. 31% said, absolutely, strongly agree. Since the pandemic, I am definitely more open to God. 28%, I somewhat agree. So that equals 59%. Well over half of this next generation says, because of all that crap I went through with the pandemic, I am hungry for God, more hungry than I was before the pandemic. And then the other 40-whatever percent said it hasn't really changed my hunger level. Next survey, rising spiritual hunger in the U.S. There's a lot of stats on this one, but that first line basically is everything I told you in the first slide about people wanting to grow spiritually. This next one's interesting. When they were asked, do you think a spiritual or supernatural dimension exists? 83% of this next generation said, yeah, there's definitely some kind of supernatural dimension. 83% of millennials, 82 of Gen Z or 79 of boomers. The vast majority of people believe there's something more than what I'm seeing. What's the next question? Do you believe in God or a higher power? The vast majority, 77% and 76 and 77 and 79, believe that there's some kind of God. People are hungry. The harvest is truly plentiful. People are not active. The laborers are few. You found a good thing that people are hungry for. You need to share it. 
So when you walked in, you should have got an invite ticket. If you didn't, they're out there. Invite ticket. You can invite people to church without an invite ticket, but it helps to have one. We have a whole bunch of new invite tickets that, we are, that are in the lobby. Encourage you, just grab a stack and put it in your wallet. Put it in your purse. And when the Holy Spirit prompts you, man, you should invite them to church. You don't have to just say, hey, look up, go Google, Alive Family Church. Yeah, we're over there, honey, and just give them this, and they'll have all the information that they need. There's a little QR code on the back that leads them to a page that would give them information. Just says, hey, would, you, would love to have you join me at church this weekend. All of us this morning are holding one of these. We all have at least one person we can invite. Let this burn in your pocket. I'm not going to be a statistic that doesn't give this away this year. We're about to move into a new building, and there's like extra, like, it's extra easy to invite someone to church right now. Hey, my church is moving into a new building. I'd love to have you come out. Hey, we're hosting the A kind. I'd love to have you come out. Super easy. Go grab like five of them and beat the statistic. I want, okay, so we've got this one. We've got one that says come as you are, kind of two generic ones. We've got a live kids ones. I'm so excited about this. Give your kids, your grandkids, Alive Kids tickets and have them pass it out to their friends at church. So cool. There's a QR code that takes them to more information about the kids' ministry. Youth invite tickets for our youth. And then this is one that we um, had a couple years ago that we haven't printed recently. It says a little something extra to show you that God loves you. And this is something when you feel prompted, like you're in line at Starbucks. Starbucks, uh, this is not, um, what do you call, promoted. It's not sponsored by Starbucks. Um, when you're in line at McDonald's or Starbucks or wherever you go, and you're like, man, I'd like, I got some extra cash. I want to bless the person behind me. Pay for their thing and then give the cashier this. A little something extra to show you that God loves you. On the back it says, from a friend at a live family church. Just be kind. Just be generous. And we're giving you guys tools to invite and be generous and be kind. We have an opportunity to invite someone to church, give an invitation. We got a frappe and they want it. You know what I'm saying? People, they matter so much to God. And the story of what God's doing in people's life at Alive is just starting. And it's because God is good and he's moving in people's lives, but also because he chose to partner with us. And we chose to partner with him and build a wall through prayer and through invitation. Jason, you want to come up for a minute? In the coming months, we're going to start to learn names of people, names of families that have been so dry spiritually. So many families that haven't been to church in three years since COVID, their church going in, uh, rhythms got interrupted, and they're dying to get back into the presence of the Lord through corporate worship. We're going to learn their names, their faces, their hearts are going to come alive to the Lord, be energized in church community. We're going to learn names of people and places people and families that have long um, written off God in church. They're going to get invited by us and they're going to come to meet Jesus personally for themselves, know him personally, live for him passionately. Their family tree is going to be forever changed for the cause of Christ. In the coming weeks and months and years, we're going to learn names and faces of people that right now are in a really dark, hopeless place. But because we built a wall, because we prayed, because we invited, they experience the presence of power of God and worship. Their chains are loosed. They are free and released to fulfill all God has for their life. 
We're going to learn names upon names and family after family that come to know God personally and live for him passionately because we chose to build a wall, church, because we chose to pray, because we chose to get rid of this invite ticket that we were given without asking for it this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much. Lord, we see that the harvest is truly plentiful and the labors are few. Lord, continue to strengthen us and empower us to pray. Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us of who we should be praying for. Lead us and guide us on who we should be giving the invitation to and to do it in faith with expectation, knowing they want our frappe. They're hungry spiritually. They want to know you. They feel the God-shaped void in their heart, even though they might express it in ways that make it look like they don't. Lord, move in a fresh way. Lord, we're so expectant for the names and the faces and the families that we get to help rescue, that we get to partner with you to build a wall to protect them from eternal destruction. Lord, do a new thing, do a fresh thing in and among us. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to close with one more scripture. Matthew 22. Jesus likens the kingdom of God to a dad who throws a wedding party for his son. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who, was, who arranged a marriage for his son. And this king, our heavenly father, sent out his servants and had an invitation list for his party, his wedding. And the people he invited didn't want to come. So then in verse 9, then he said, forget, forget it. Go to everybody. Go to the highways and find as many as you come and invite them to the wedding. Scripture talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, this big party that we're going to have when we get to heaven and we're finally with our Jesus. The church is known as the bride of Christ and Jesus is our groom. I know if you're a guy that's like, you're not sure if you like that, but that's just what the Bible says. Jesus is coming back and one day we will be with him. And so if you're here this morning and you're not confident that you're going to be at that party, I want you to know you're invited. If you're watching online, you're invited. There is an eternal destination, a place of paradise called heaven, and Jesus wants you there. The invitation is yours. And Jesus says you don't have to bend over backwards and change your life and do a bunch of things to come to the party. Just accept my invitation. Just say, yeah, I'll be there. And, and the way you accept the invitation is believing that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he was going to do, that Jesus really is the Son of God, that he really did come and die on the cross for our sins, went to hell in our place, was resurrected three days later. He's right now in heaven next to the Father interceding for us, and he's coming back like he promised he would. And when he comes back, we want to be ready. At the end of every service, we pause to make a faith confession, to declare Jesus, you're our Lord. And if you've never done that, we encourage you to pray this prayer with us. Know that you'll be at that marriage party in heaven. Church, let's close our eyes and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. If you're here this morning and you're not sure that you'll be at that party because you're not sure where you stand with Jesus, don't leave this morning without accepting the invitation. It's free. You don't have to change anything about your life. 
You have to just believe that Jesus is who he said he is and you can come just as you are. All eyes closed, all head bowed. If that's you this morning, would you raise your hand? Let the Lord know I'm coming. I'm accepting the invitation. Amen, I see that hand. Church family, let's pray this together. Say, Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus is your son. I believe he died on the cross for my sins and rose three days later. And today, I declare he is my Lord. I'm accepting his invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.